Some of you may be familiar with what I think is no longer a thing. It was a television program that I watched more of than I meant to when I had our nearly 15-year-old son was about four. And this program you may recognize instantly as I tell you the beginning of one particular song. It goes like this. Hello, everyone. We're the Wiggles. I'm Greg. I'm Mary. I'm Anthony. And I'm Jeff. And we're with our good friend today, Paul the Cook. What have you got for us today, Paul? Well, Mary, today I've got some hot potatoes and some ooey-gooey mashed bananas and some cold spaghetti. Hot potato, hot potato. Okay. So... Yeah, you see, I watch this a lot. I haven't heard that or seen that, I think, in probably 10 years or maybe 11, and I can't believe I admitted that I've seen it ever. This man band, not a boy band, a man band, (laughs) with long, solid color rainbow t-shirts, some wearing all yellow, some wearing all blue. I don't remember the other colors, red, green, perhaps. Fantastic stuff, guys. But it makes me realize part of what the Apostle Paul is up to here today. Huh? Is he Australian? The Apostle Paul, who is facing people while he himself is in jail, who are themselves on the verge of getting raked over the coals because of their association with the Savior who's been raked over the coals. That's how he would have them think of it. They're in a hostile culture. They're in a world where he has just told them it has been given to you not only to suffer, I mean, not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. He's trying to prepare them to say, it doesn't mean something's wrong if your life falls apart, if you're connected to the Savior whose life fell apart, because in God's fall apart, that's when renovation happens. That's when recovery happens. That's when renewal occurs. Death always leads the way for renovation and resurrection. He also knows that not only do they have these external pressures of persecution perhaps awaiting them in this town of Philippi, which is an outpost of Rome, which is a Roman colony, but also they have internal stresses. We've just talked about last week the lovely ladies Yodia and Syntyche, two women that we assume he's not trying to shame, but two women who must have been leaders of some sort in the congregation. And he's saying, I plead with you to agree because all of you have your names written in the book of life. You've all been commonly acted upon by Jesus. The end is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. You can't hold grudges against people because God's not holding grudges against you. And he's urging them in this letter to consider others' interests better than their own, to preference others, to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others like Jesus has done. And then he says this, finally, brothers, oh, and by the way, this is the second time in this letter that Paul says, finally, (laughs) he said at the beginning of chapter three, this is the end of chapter four. So I consider myself to have scriptural warrant to end any number of times today. So in closing, and then I'll just keep going and say in closing again, and 
I'll say just like the Apostle Paul. Finally, brothers, he says for the second time, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, if anything is admirable or excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you've heard from me or received from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. He's talking to people whose lives are filled with the possibility of unrest, of non-tranquility, of great dismay, internal and external, which creates it in your own fabric of your soul. The world is a dangerous place. He knows it. He's not Pollyanna-ish. We follow a Savior who was brutalized, who's remaking a world where that won't happen. But until that happens, we're going to encounter brutality of sorts, uncertainties of sorts. And he is urging, not just an aesthetics lesson here, give yourselves to the pursuit of the good and the true and the beautiful. He's not merely telling us that. He's telling people who are in the middle of situations they don't want to be in, just like you might be, how they can furnish their minds with stuff that will stick. And I recited the Wiggles to show you how that works. Isn't it amazing that there are songs, there are things that capture your attention, that you give your mind to, and they stick there even though you can't remember the password to your banking account online? about had a panic attack the other day when my insecure app was instantly vanished. Some iPhone goblin came into my house and deleted, it probably was me, by accidentally deleting it, by, and then pocket dialed six people at the same time. All the passwords for our whole lives were gone. I had a backup, but fortunately it was from December, so I'm right on track. But your mind is a populated place. Like the city of Chattanooga, like even Durham, even though it's a slight population. Like great cities like Tokyo and London and smaller places like ours, your mind is a populated place. There are thoughts that reside there. There is stuff that is furniture that can be arranged inside of you that's going to affect what's outside of you and what you see and what you think and what you feel. And so the apostle is telling people in rather stressful and rather undesirable circumstances, here's what you've got to do. He's just told them to make sure that they rejoice always, that they pray about everything, because prayer, though it seems like a monumental nothing, many a school... Although it seems like a minuscule nothing is a monumental something. He says you can pray your way out of lots of anxieties by recognizing the world doesn't rest on your shoulders, but on the Lord's who is very near, who holds the earth in his hand, who can undo all the sad things to make them come untrue. And now he's saying, here's what you do with your mind. You work on populating it with the right stuff. Has anybody here ever binge-watched? That's a new expression. Binge-watched Netflix, Homeland, or Friends, or Game of Thrones, or the Wiggles. (laughs) 
Sometimes when I'm feeling really down. Your next episode of The Wiggles will continue in three, two, one. No, I don't even know if The Wiggles are on there. Surely most of you have binge-watched something at some point if you were of a certain age. Do you know what I'm talking about? You get captivated by the siren song of this repeat loop of available media to distract you, to dull you, to anesthetize the gunky feel inside. You know, they have said that people who binge-watch shows tend to be depressed. Congratulations. I think there's something more to it than that, though. I think that's probably right. Because it's a passive way of getting at something that we hope will relieve us. And it's something that I noticed when I, when I first moved out to these parts in this rural place where we have, we have some real rural poverty around us. And I noticed, that I'm starting my 15th year, I noticed being out here many years ago that even, even an RV I was driving behind one day had a satellite dish on the back of it. A satellite dish on an RV. And then I kept driving around, and I noticed that trailers and houses, big houses and little tiny houses and pristine, pristine houses and dilapidated trailers, they all had satellite dishes. This is before cable was available out here. And, of course, we didn't have cable. And do you know how you can tell someone who doesn't have TV? They will tell you. So as not to get smug, we invited the devil into our house a few years ago. (laughs) Cable vision, so we could, because the boys, we need to have father-son moments around sporting events. That's it. It's it's all about parenting. (laughs) But no, I started thinking, why does everybody have this? And I heard people say, we were on diaconal calls sometimes, people who couldn't make their house payment. We went in their house, and they had a TV the size of me, which is like, they don't even make those anymore. And it's easy for people to judge and say, oh, they got a big TV bigger than me, bigger than my house. We can't help them. But, you know, I got to thinking about that. Thinking, why do we binge watch shows? Why do we, why do we want, why do even the poor spend money on big TVs that they can't afford? And I think there's a part of us that longs to connect to glory. Now, we don't, we don't always connect to it the right way. But, you know, Martin Luther once said, the, poor's, the life of the poor is filled with ugliness. They need beauty. We need beauty because our lives are filled with ugliness. And you know this sometimes riveting. You get on a TV and the people are so bright and shiny and attractive. And the storylines, there's crisis. There's resolution. There's excitement. And unlike your life, there's a soundtrack accompanying it that makes even the most mundane things a chance encounter and locking of eyes with the lovely lady in the front row. And there's music. That's my wife, you see. And there's music. And you feel something. It's enlivening. It feels like you're connecting to something from outer space, something transcendent for a moment, I think. Now, I don't think that... It delivers as much as you hope it will. But I think that's something what the Apostle's urging us to do in treacherous situations, precarious moments. Brothers, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about 
such things. He knows what my professor, Dr. Walkie, said, riffing off of Gerald Manley Hopkins, that your inscape determines your landscape. In other words, the way you're configured on the inside, your commitments, your convictions, they determine a whole lot about what you're able to see out in the world. And so if you have a disposition within that is merely content to just let your thoughts happen to you, which is what most of us do, you give a, ascribe a sort of deity to your thoughts. Thoughts come into your head. You're worthless. He doesn't love you. You're not going to have enough money. You're too fat. You're too skinny. You're too ugly. Your hair's awful. You can't wear that dress. They're going to find out about you. These thoughts come into your head, and without thinking, you just listen to them. You let them affect you. You let them navigate you and push you and happen to you and victimize you. And the apostles say, you know what a Christian person does? A Christian person has been acted on by Jesus Christ. He is under no condemnation. She is under no dread from God. She looks forward to being into the, welcomed into the heart of things, not because of anything she's done, but because of what Christ has done for her. So therefore, she has been liberated from the tyranny of herself. Not only that, he has been ingodded. God has moved in by his Holy Spirit into the neighborhood of his life to refurbish it. Therefore, you do not have to listen to all your thoughts. You know, Martin Luther once said, you can't do anything about birds landing on your head, which is a good thing, you know. I hope that doesn't happen to you. You can't do anything about birds landing on your head, but you can keep them from building a nest there. You can shoo them away. And I think what he's saying is when you have anxieties, when you have grudges, when you have fears, when you have the inner sewage and gunk that begins to derail you and sink you down into a funk that the only thing you know to do is to let the next episode of George Gently, come on. you got to watch George Gently sometime. Then you're sunk. But he says, here's what you do. Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's admirable, whatever's excellent, whatever's praiseworthy, think about those things. You can control the things you're thinking about. You can aim your thoughts. You can steward yourself instead of being victimized by yourself. You can begin to furnish your mind with different kinds of things. My mother wrote me from Ireland the other day, where she does not live, but where she is visiting. And she wrote in this short email, today, we were at, she gave me a few instructions first, and then she wrote, today, we went to the cliffs of Moor. That's what it said in the email, the cliffs of Moor. So magnificent and mighty and beautiful that I just had to cry and be thankful to and for God. See, there was something renewing about that scene. She landed on something that took her breath away. She was thinking about something excellent and praiseworthy. She was pondering that, and it made her forget all about everything else for the moment. 
And this is the kind of thing the Apostle Paul's up to. This is the kind of thing C.S. Lewis said when he said, I want to try to turn every pleasure of mine into a channel of adoration. I want to trace every pleasure, every fantastic thing I see in the world, everything that, everything that I taste that's, that's sumptuous, so not kale. Every, okay. Everything that I listen to that moves me. Everything that I experience with my body that's wonderful. Letting these things lead me up the sunbeam, up to where the beauty, the excellency came from. I try to change, channel all my pleasures into adoration. Let them become starting points to lead me back. Because what's inside us invariably makes itself outside of us. What's inside us is, determines what we can see. And if we've believed that what's true of us is that we are not the author of ourselves, nor are we the author of our best hope. That we are not led along by our own noses, but instead we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has rescued us from the tyranny of the devil, who watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our heads then we don't have to think about us all the time. And we can fixate on the outside. We can praise. We can be at the cliffs of Moor and thank God. Lewis also says, it occurs to me that praise is inner health made audible. And it's interesting that Paul tells us to think about these wonderful things outside of us and the God of peace will be with us. He's talking about some measure, at least it would seem, of inner psychological peace, which often comes from being set free from the tyranny of yourself. Set me free, says the psalmist, from my prison, that I may praise your name. When we praise, we are forgetting us for a moment, and we are liberated. Do you ever experience that sometimes? Some of you sometimes want to raise your hand, but you're so Presbyterian, you think it's going to fall off if you do. Sometimes you forget yourself just enough in prayer or in a conversation with somebody else or in a great moment. There was a kid yesterday in our baseball game. He was dancing. They had music on in between. Right field of all-star game. This is serious business. The kid's going, boom. He had his glove down, coach's son, fro working. This white kid with a big old fro. He was dancing. He was enjoying the movement and the, mood and the moment. And he forgot himself and he forgot where he was. And he was happier than all of us. And the peace of God had come upon him. Praise is inner health made audible. And he says, I've noticed this, that cranks and malcontents praise least. But those who are most healthy and who are most humble praise the most. So one of the things you've got to do is you've got to ignore your inner Eeyore. Nothing's good. He's terrible. We don't have enough money. You've got to ignore these things and say, what is excellent in the world? What is true in the world? What is it that I believe? What can I notice that's good about people Some of us have an addiction to complaint. And you know, some of you have been addicted to things. It's awful. Wendell Berry in one of his articles says this about smoking. 
Did you quit? Do you still smoke? No, I don't smoke. Did you ever smoke? Yes, I did smoke. Why'd you quit? Well, two reasons. One, I had kids, but the other reason was because I was addicted. And he says, you know what? I got to where I could smoke a cigarette and not even know I had done it. There is no pleasure in that. See, that's the thing about being mastered by something. And when you're mastered by your own inner eordness, by your own inner critic, by your own inner anxiety, so when you just let your life happen to you on the inside and you don't steward any of that stuff, you just think, I have to let it all happen to me, it makes you addicted to complaint. It makes you the world's critic. It makes you adept at snark. We always have to be fighting this this morning. The same by to Kathy. I was out in the driveway. I'd been sitting in our house where our air conditioning broke earlier. It's only going to cost $42,000, so it's worth it. <laughs> but I was going to Lula Lake to the other site, and I just found myself saying, It's so hot. Of course I say that all summer. It's, of course it's obvious. Like, why do I say it? I don't know, because I'm, I'm held captive by a need to make sure that the inner discomfort that I feel from sweating from the moment I wake up till I go to bed, I need to make sure I complain about that. Of course, that's the only thing I've ever complained about. But see, all I'm doing when I'm doing that is practicing the presence of myself and my own miseries. I'm acting like I'm operating in an unshepherded world. I'm acting like the world has been reduced down to the size of just me. And of course, everybody would like to hear how miserable I am. Man, is it hot in here? What if I just said that 42,000 times? You would say, okay, we got it. It's hot. We feel it too. Shut up. Drink some water. Or you might put me in a dunk tank like what happened once before. You know the story of Narcissus. Narcissus was a lovely young man, and he knew it. The ladies loved him. L.L. Narcissus. Cool Narcissus. And he was walking along, and he had the misfortune of having a nemesis called Nemesis. Some of you are paying attention. The god Nemesis recognized that he was scornful to the young ladies who adored him. And one day he had him happen upon a little brook where he noticed his reflection. And he looked into his reflection, into this little mirror in the water. And he went, whoa, dang, I am good looking. And now I understand what all the ladies are fussing over. I'm stunning. And I don't even use any product in my hair. I've never been to the Clinique boutique. And yet, look at me. Look at me. And he's fixated there, looking at me. And one of Eugene Peterson's recounting this story, he says, and he cannot leave. Various versions of it. He commits suicide. A flower grows in his place. But... He cannot leave. He starves to death on a steady diet of himself. That's what's happening to most of the people around us. Most of the people around us, we've had a change in what makes a person. Most of the people around us think the way you become a person is a steady diet of yourself. You obey every desire you have. 
You follow everything that you want. The only way to be authentic and true and a genuine person is to do everything you want to do the way you want to do it. Follow your own truth. And the Bible, who is not very pluralistic in these things, would say that is stupid. Sorry, but it's stupid. It's not right. And the Bible has a reason to say this because Jesus made us. And he says, no, actually, when you don't diet on yourself and you get outside of yourself, then you find yourself. The person who tries to hang on to themselves, well, they lose themselves. So if you want inner health and you want the peace of God, you've got to do things that are inviting and not repelling. You can characterize your life in such a way that you just think about yourself all the time and you won't know the peace of God. He says, do these things and the peace of God will be with you. You can also open yourself up and say, will you release me from the snare of my own practicing of the presence of myself all the time? So that my endscape changes so I can see differently out there? So that I can notice true things, beautiful things, excellent things, praiseworthy things, so I don't practice the presence of myself and follow my own inner Eeyore. And now in conclusion... This is the first of three conclusions. I want to share this poem. It's hard to read a poem, to hear a poem. That's a good poem. Or a poem, as some people say, which I like as well. It's called In the Library by Charles Simic. There's a book called The Dictionary of Angels. No one had opened it in 50 years. I know. Because when I did, the covers creaked. The pages crumbled, and there I discovered the angels were once as plentiful as species of flies. The sky at dusk used to be thick with them. You had to wave both arms just to keep them away. Tracking so far? I'm in the library. I run across a book that apparently hasn't been opened in 50 years, and I opened it up. It's called The Dictionary of Angels, and I discover that it used to. We believed in supernatural things. Angels were in the skies. The heavens were populated and poked through the earth from time to time, so much so that you had to wave your arms like mosquitoes at a barbecue to get them away. But now, he says, the sun is shining through the tall windows. The library is a quiet place. Angels and gods are huddled in dark, unopened books. The great secret lies on some shelf that Miss Jones passes every day on her rounds. She's very tall, so she keeps her head tipped as if listening. The books are whispering. I hear nothing, but she does. Miss Jones knows about this book. She keeps her head tipped because the books are whispering that the heavens are populated, that the earth is haunted with goodness, with the possibilities of redemption, of renewal, that we're not left here by ourselves, that this planet is not a place where we've been orphaned, but it's shepherded. He says, I can't hear the whispers, but that lady, she can hear the whispers. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you're the community who hears the whispers of God, who notices them. Who notices them in all the pleasures that you have that you turn into channels of adoration. You're like this moth that I caught in my house on Friday night. 
a moth that I would have to describe as a pterodactyl moth. I'm no lepidopterist or whatever, lepidopterist, which is what a scientist of butterflies and moths is. But I'm going to call it a pterodactyl moth because this moth was so big that I thought I needed to get on like a hazmat suit to tend to it and a shotgun. I thought this thing is going to fly off with me. And I grabbed that sucker finally. Oh, I opened the window first, the crank out window in the kitchen. I grabbed that sucker and I threw him out the window. Threw out my shoulder. And you know what he did? Audacity. He flew right back in. He was running for light. And so this time I thought, I think I might have dimmed the lights and I had to be more hasty. I finally got him out of there. Without injury. But I noticed the moths, they will smash up against the glass of our front door. They'll smash up against our kitchen windows trying to get to light. And we are the people who recognize that this creation is God's good creation. That he's propped himself up against the ruin of. And so everything good we notice, we are like moths, like pterodactyl moths, hastening to the source of the light. And we're the people who hear the book as it whispers. We're around so many people that can't hear it. They don't think that God is even there. It's become plausible to think this now. 500 years ago, not even a possibility that people would be godless or atheistic. Now entirely plausible. And you're the community who gets the peace of God by nothing you've done. You get your eyes opened by the Savior who welcomes you and who says, don't practice the the presence of yourself. Look out to God and to neighbor. Look out to what's excellent and praiseworthy and help the world as the only book I've ever written, the congregation, to understand, to understand the whispers. Becky read that the heavens are telling the glories of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. You're the people who've heard it. And we go out now into the world as little Christs, focusing not on us, but on him and them and all that he's done that is good so that we can help others hear that whispery speech. Amen.